the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. How do we expose ourselves to the danger of losing our faith? We expose ourselves to the danger of losing our faith by neglecting our spiritual duties, reading bad books, going to non-Catholic schools. Well, neglecting our spiritual duties, obviously, if I fail to say my prayers, if I fail to go to church when I should, these things will tend to weaken my awareness of the overwhelming importance of God and of the salvation of my soul. Reading bad books, I don't think that means pornography, I mean, I think it means reading books that uh, could endanger my faith. I remember a woman came to me with a book, she said it had given her difficulties, and she asked me to look at it. It was a book about confession by some good Dutch Catholic, put into English. So I opened it, and I read the first paragraph of the foreword, and it, it went something like this. It started off by saying, Now that it's generally agreed among Catholics that the practice of confession has reached a deadlock, well, I closed the book then. I said, Why do you read this book? She said, Oh, it gave me some good ideas. Look, if we start going around thinking that we're here to get good ideas, we're, we're greatly mistaken. An ounce more faith is worth more than a ton of, of, of good ideas. Our human mind, we may think it's powerful, but it can be very easily led into error. And, well, we can be deceived. And we should try to nourish our faith at sources where there's going to be no poison. If I read scripture, that's wholesome. It's the best reading there is. If I read the writings of saints, or the documents of the church, the official documents of the church, that's where the faith contained, and the writings of the popes, and the lives of the saints, and there are many really good authors whom I can re read without any danger at all. But there are many people and fascinating writers who in their writings can contain some error. St. Ignatius, for instance, he wouldn't allow any book by Erasmus in a Jesuit house. Well, Erasmus was one of the great minds of his, of his age. He was the illegitimate son of a priest, a brilliant man, but in his writings he, he couldn't resist sometimes to make snide remarks about the church or about religious orders, about the hierarchy. And St. Ignatius reckoned that these embittered remarks could perhaps weaken the faith of some of his young men and say so he wouldn't allow his books in the house. And that's sensible, I think. Recently in this, this house where I live, we threw away seven pounds of jam. Well, it was in a tin, and I'd noticed that it was opened in the larder, just lying in the tin. And about a month later, I meant to sort of empty it out, but it wasn't emptied out. About a month or so later, I saw it again. There it was, still in the tin. So we tipped it out. 
and it seemed all right, smelt all right, seemed to taste all right. But you know, poisoning, food poisoning, is something very bad, and I don't understand it. And there could have been something harmful with that jam, simply having been in an open tin for so long, so we chucked it out. If you had a lot of food, and there was a bit of food about which you were doubtful, you thought, maybe it's off, maybe it isn't off. If you had a lot of food, you'd chuck out what was, what was doubtful. Now, in the church's treasury, she has many good spiritual books, no shortage of them. You never get around to reading them all. So, I think you'd be crazy to read things that are doubtful. So I, I recommend people to be very careful about what they read. People are careful about what they eat. They should be even more careful about what they allow into their minds. And of course the same goes with television and so on. A prudent person exercise a sort of control over what they read, over what they look at. Let's go on. What are the sins against hope? The sins against hope are despair and presumption. Despair meaning, how can I save my soul? God's certainly sending me to hell. I'll never make the grade for heaven. I'll never overcome this sin. I'll never get out of this mess. I might just as well give up. That's despair and it's bad. Because it doesn't take into account the immense mercy of God, the fact that he loves us, the fact that he's our father, his infinite power, we don't take that into account, and we should. And presumption means thinking to myself, Oh, God could never send me to hell. I'll be all right. St. Paul it tells us we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have to know that God's good, and that he loves us, and that he's on our side. But we need to know also that we're weak sinners. And so we have to trust him immensely and have a distrust of ourselves. What are the chief sins against religion? The chief sins against religion are the worship of false gods or idols, and the giving to any creature whatsoever the honour which belongs to God alone. Does the first commandment forbid the making of images? The first commandment does not forbid the making of images, but the making of idols, that is, it forbids us to make images to be adored or honoured as gods. People object to seeing pictures of the saints, statues of the saints. I remember during the war, I had to go into somebody's room. He was in the army. We were in France. I had to go into his room to get something for him. And in his room, he had about eight pictures of his wife. It was a little room, but everywhere you looked, there was a vast portrait of this good man's wife. He was surrounded by, by photographs of his wife. And I thought to myself, that's really nice. That's how it should be. We were stationed in Paris. I thought, that's how it should be. And if we have pictures and statues of the saints, well, why not? We'll see them in heaven. This representation here is very inadequate, and we know it. But nevertheless, it reminds us that there's someone who loves us. Does the first commandment forbid dealing with the devil and superstitious practices? The first commandment forbids all dealing with the devil and superstitious practices, such as consulting spiritualists and fortune tellers, 
entrusted to charms, omens, dreams, and such like fooleries. Well, this is really important. There's an immense world of evil spirits, and they hate us. We don't know the extent of their power. But the devil's like a dog on a chain. If you get bitten by a dog on a chain, that's your fault. You shouldn't have got so close. And the church warns us against all these things. I remember when I was going to confirmation classes in Singapore, and I said to the priest, he, he was a, a Dutchman from Indonesia, I said, I thought the church was a bit tough on spiritualism, because I had a great aunt who was a spiritualist, and she was a, she was a good, good woman. And he said, well, if you were out here for a bit, you'd realize that the devil gets mixed up in these things quite a bit. And the church is very wise in warning her children to keep right away from all these things. I was talking to a priest once, and he said that a woman in his parish, her son had died, he was only a boy, he died, and she was really shattered. And she started going to seances, spiritualist sessions, and she got in touch with her son, and this gave her great comfort. She talked with him, and she told this to the priest, and he said, on no account should you do that. And she said, but I talked to him, you knew, and you come along too, you'll hear his voice, you'll know it's, the, it's, it's my son. So the priest went along, and he heard the boy's voice, and he said, the priest said, I command you in the name of the Holy Trinity, tell us who you really are. And the voice spoke back and said, I'm a demon. There is great danger in having anything whatever to do with any sort of witchcraft or evil practices, because once you get in touch with these things, maybe it's difficult to get out of touch. I knew a student, this was years ago, he was from Trinidad, and he had a sort of addiction, if you like, for witchcraft. It was some sort of devilry he was up to, and uh, he'd been exorcised, he told me, in Trinidad, but he couldn't get away from it somehow, and he, he was always getting these books and reading about it. The going for spiritualism is like getting into a boxing ring with Muhammad Ali and him invisible. It's very foolish. We should trust to God and not think that we have to know everything. And if God wants us to save our soul in sickness, well, we should allow that to, to go ahead. Take what precautions we can. Sure, we can uh, ask the intercession of the saints, if you like, besides going to the doctor and doing ordinary physical things for your healing. So far as the devil goes, if we can loosen our hold on Christ in some way and go, go after something else, he's happy. And so, in this matter, one should use the protection that the church gives against evil spirits, namely, holy water, crosses and crucifixes in your house, and wearing blessed medals or blessed crosses on your person. These are ways that the church gives us to protect us against evil spirits. And we should refrain from curiosity. There's lots of things, and it's much better we don't know about them.
It's a fact that uh, if you start mucking about with evil spirits, you don't know where it's going to e end. And it's, it's of the greatest danger. And if ever you have done it, and you've come out unscathed, then you should thank God and tell him from now on you will place all your reliance on Christ. Next question. Are all sins of sacrilege and simony also forbidden by the first commandment? What's sacrilege? Sacrilege is it's a mistreatment of what is sacred, of things or persons who are con which are consecrated to God's worship, to divine worship. To receive Holy Communion, I suppose, if you're in a state of real evil sin, we call that a sacrilege. If you haven't repented, you haven't been to confession. Uh, if a person took the chalice, which is used at Mass, and used it just to drink tea out of, that would be using something sacred in a bad way. We call that sacrilege. Holy things, we should use it in the way God wants. Simony, there was a, somebody called Simon, you remember, in the Acts of the Apostles, who when seeing St. Peter laying his hands on people, so that the people received the Holy Spirit, he offered St. Peter money, and said, give me this power so that I can lay my hands on people, and they receive the Holy Spirit too. And St. Peter ticked him off and said, that's evil. Well, the sin of trying to, of buying or selling holy things like that, it's called simony, after this man Simon. Catholics offer priests money and ask them to say a mass for them. You'd say, aren't they buying the mass? Isn't that simony? Well, no. In the Old Testament, if some good Israelite wanted sacrifice offered in the temple, he'd have to go off and buy a sheep and take it along to the priest and ask the priest to offer sacrifice. And he knew very well, because it's laid down in the law of Moses, that the priest would take some of that animal for his own family, take some of the meat for his own table. But that's only to be expected. The priest has a right to live. And so the faithful offer priests money and ask them to say Mass. After all, the priest got to buy the wine and buy the things for the altar. And then it, uh, it, it helps the priest uh, survive the offering. There's no sort of fixed charge. Ordinarily, bishops do say what the... Uh, what the ordinary offering should be. But in point of fact, people do give less, and people can give more. And uh, if people just can't give anything, well, they just ask the priest, and sure, he'd be glad to offer Mass for them. We're going on now with question number 184. Is it forbidden to give divine honor or worship to the angels and saints? It is forbidden to give divine honor or worship to the angels and saints, for this belongs to God alone. What kind of honor or worship should we pay to the angels and saints? We should pay to the angels and saints an inferior honor or worship, for this is due to them as the servants and special friends of God. You know, only yesterday I was talking to a man who said that he heard a priest, it was the feast of St. Michael, give a little talk and tell people that really, if you still believed in the existence of angels, you're a medieval sort of peasant. Now look, 
Angels exist. How do we know? The church tells us. I've never seen an angel. But I get my religion not from what I've seen. I get my religion from Christ, who is God, and he's left his church to tell me about these realities that lie beyond our sense experience. In the credo of the people of God, which is the expression of faith that the Holy Father gave us after that year of faith which he proclaimed, he says right at the beginning that we believe in the existence of angels. Anyhow, I think it's a bit arrogant to think that we are so high in God's order of creation that he can think of nothing better than us. So there's actually no creatures existing between us and God. No, there's plenty of angels, pure spirits, who love us and who want to help us. And so we should pray to the angels. And it's a great thing if people didn't want to call their baby boy to call him Michael. And when it comes to baptism, for honouring the saints, well, to call your children after saints, to ask various saints in heaven to be the special protectors of your children, so that when you're dead and gone, they'll still be looking after them and trying to help them towards heaven. So we should certainly honour the angels and saints. And if you read lives of the saints, this will help you to learn to love them. And like that, already in this life, you will enter into a friendly relationship with these marvellous people whom, please God, we shall see later on in heaven. What honour should we give to relics, crucifix and holy pictures? We should give to relics, crucifixes and holy pictures a relative honour as they related to Christ and his saints and the memorials of them. And so relics of saints, sure, we honour them, we keep them in a special place because they are parts of that body which was once a temple of the Holy Spirit and it's a fact that through relics of saints God does work miracles just to show us, I suppose, that he likes us to honour these things. Do we pray to relics or images? Well, of course, we do not pray to relics or images, for they can neither see nor hear nor help us. We pray to people in heaven, to God the Holy Trinity first of all, and then to our Blessed Lady, the angels and saints. These are people who love us, and so why should we not talk to them? What's the second commandment? The second commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, what are we commanded by the second commandment? By the second commandment we're commanded to speak with reverence of God and all holy persons and things and to keep our lawful oaths and vows. So one shouldn't take God's name in vain. And, you know, I hear people saying Christ. I always try to stop them. And you hear Catholics saying Christ. Well, we shouldn't. And much less say Jesus. That's the holy name. So you should be careful never to take God's name on your lips except by way of prayer. And if you've gotten to the habit, well, you should break it. And as I said earlier, I think, when you hear the holy name Jesus, it's good to give a little bow of your head as a sort of interior act of adoration. 
What does the second commandment forbid? The second commandment forbids all false, rash, unjust, and unnecessary oaths, as also blaspheming, cursing, and profane words. Blaspheming is speaking insultingly about God, or sort of insultingly to God. When we talk to God or talk about God, we have to have an attitude of reverence always. Is it ever lawful to swear or to take an oath? It is lawful to swear or to take an oath, only when God's honour or our own or our neighbour's good requires it. So we're allowed to go and, and take an oath in, in court if we have to swear by the Bible that we're going to tell the truth. What's the third commandment? The third commandment is, remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day. What are we commanded by the third commandment? By the third commandment we're commanded to keep the Sunday holy. How are we to keep the Sunday holy? We're to keep the Sunday holy by hearing Mass and resting from servile works. Why are we commanded to rest from servile works? We're commanded to rest from servile works that we may have time and opportunity for prayer, going to the sacraments, hearing instructions and reading good books. Well, this is important, and people don't think it is, and that's a great mistake. To treat Sunday like any other day of the week, it's a great mistake. I'm not thinking of any psychological reason at all. Maybe there's a psychological need for that rest, I don't know. But if God's given us our whole lives, and if God does want us to keep one day, you know, as his day, then to treat it as though it was just any day of the week, it's not right. The saints were pretty unanimous about this. The curé of ours, that holy parish priest in France who died about a hundred years ago, in one of his sermons, he said, if you see people going off to their fields to work on a Sunday, and you say to them, what are you going to do? They should answer, I'm going to work for the devil. If you've got into the way of treating Sunday just like any other day, then you should try to change that. You should try to think of your soul. After all, look, when we leave this life, we're going to have none of these worldly things to comfort us, only God. And we have to try to get used to breathing this air of heaven. If you were going to go to a desert island where there was going to be nothing to eat except rhubarb pie, and supposing you loathed rhubarb pie, you'd think to yourself, well, if there's going to be nothing to eat except rhubarb pie, the sooner I get to like it, the better. And so you'd start trying to cultivate a, a liking for rhubarb pie. So eventually, perhaps, whenever rhubarb pie came on the table, you'd say, oh, good, rhubarb pie. When we die, it's only going to be God who's going to be our comfort and consolation. In this life, we have to try to accustom ourselves to finding in God our comfort and consolation. And if you persevere, sure, you'll be able to. And so, to go to church, and maybe to do some spiritual reading, and try to give God a bit of extra time on a Sunday, it's, it's wise. And as for resting from servile works, that was a bit of legislation brought in by the church, I suppose, in order to protect the slaves and serfs, because at the beginning of the church's time there were slaves everywhere, and when the empire, when the Roman Empire became Christian, there were still plenty of slaves and serfs. And so the church protected them by forbidding them to be 
allowed to work on a Sunday so that they'd be free to go to Mass. And it's good, if you possibly can, to avoid Sunday work. I know nurses and people like that, they can't. And these things, and of course a priest, well, Sunday's my sort of heaviest day, but that's how it is. But if possible, a person should try to keep away from their ordinary wage-earning occupation on a Sunday in order to give more time to God. What's the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment is, Honor thy father and mother. What are we commanded by the fourth commandment? By the, f- the fourth commandment, we're commanded to love, reverence, and obey our parents in all that is not sin. Are we commanded to obey our parents only? We're commanded to obey not only our parents, but also our bishops and pastors, the civil authorities, and our lawful superiors. This fourth commandment, it, it is important. And it's especially difficult, perhaps, for teenagers. It's a sort of symptom of adolescence that you're forever contradicting your father or mother and maybe not getting on well with them. And if anyone listening to this finds that's the way with him, that he doesn't get on well with his father or mother, doubtless we've all got faults and our parents aren't perfect but we do have a duty to love them and honour them and try to help them and if you think that well maybe it's because I'm not sufficiently grown up psychologically it sort of comes along with, with adolescence that you want to break away from the home environment and be on your own and so if you've got to live at home Naturally speaking, there tend to be all sorts of tensions and contradictions. Well, we're not meant to be merely natural. And so you should try to ask God's help to give your parents the honor that they're entitled to. And it does please God. Really, it does. And also there's this. If we don't honor and love our parents... Our children won't honor and love us. If parents give their own parents all sorts of loving attention and show themselves thoughtful, this is a lesson picked up by their children, and so it goes on. These family bonds are very important, and the difficulties involved, they're part of the cross, if you like, and these help in the maturing of any Christian to be patient with a a parent maybe who's getting very old and a bit senile this is a sanctifying cross anyhow the fourth commandment is really important and it's an awful thing that you can have people in our geriatric wards who have children who haven't visited them for 20 years A Nigerian once said to me how shocked he was to hear on television people appealing for some relative of someone who was dying, whom he hadn't seen for years, and he said, if my cousin's got a cold, I know all about it. How could I not know where my brother's living? We should be much closer to our families, and any effort we make in this direction, it does please God, and it helps us spiritually. Are we bound to assist our parents in their wants? 
We are bound to assist our parents in their wants, both spiritual and temporal. Are we bound in justice to contribute to the support of our pastors? We are bound in justice to contribute to the support of our pastors. For St. Paul says, The Lord ordained that they who preach the gospel should live for the gospel. Mind you, I think the church in her long history has suffered much more from being too rich than being too poor. But nevertheless, there's a duty, obviously, to support priests because they, they don't have any other means of support. What's the duty of parents towards their children? The duty of parents towards their children is to provide for them, to instruct and correct them, and to give them a good Catholic education. I remember listening to a sermon in Italy once, and the priest was talking about parents not being strict enough with their children. It was a little country place, and he was saying if a woman had one hen, and only one hen, and the hen got out, the woman would go and look for that hen. And yet a woman can have a daughter, and the daughter isn't back at eleven o'clock at night, and you can say, where's your daughter? And the woman might say, I don't know. And the priest went on and said, we have great devotion to some of the saints, but there's one saint that I wish parents had more devotion to. San Bastoni. Bastoni is the Italian for a big stick. What's the duty of masters and mistresses and other superiors? The duty of masters, mistresses and other superiors is to take proper care of those under their charge and to enable them to practice their religious duties. Now, for some people, that's an important matter. If someone has all sorts of people working for them, they have a duty to make sure that they're enabled to practice their religious duties. And this is a matter which is on the conscience, or should be on the conscience, of the employer. What does the Fourth Commandment forbid? The Fourth Commandment forbids all contempt, stubbornness and disobedience to our parents and lawful superiors. Is it sinful to belong to a secret society? It's sinful to belong to any secret society that plots against the church or state, or to any society that by reason of its secrecy is condemned by the church. For St. Paul says, Let every soul be subject to the higher powers. He that resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist purchase to themselves damnation. We're not allowed to join the IRA, things like that, the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians. I've known a few people who are Rosicrucians. They've always had a pretty weak faith. I've never been quite sure whether their weak faith came because they were Rosicrucians or they became Rosicrucians because they had a weak faith. But uh, I recommend you to just join the church's societies. There are plenty of societies in the church for people who like joining societies. But these ones outside the church, I don't say there's anything wrong with them. They're probably quite good, I don't know. My father was a Freemason, and he was a very good man. It was just, they had a, a big party every now and then, and he came home late. But nevertheless, it's good if you're going to belong to societies, simply to belong to Catholic ones. What's the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment is, Thou shalt not kill. What does the fifth commandment forbid? The fifth commandment forbids all will from murder, fighting, quarrelling, and injurious words, and also scandal and bad example. 
uh, abortion would come under the heading of murder. And abortion is always seriously sinful. And on no account should it ever be done. Because right from the moment of conception, that's a soul which has been created by God and nobody should terminate that, that life. So, if you haven't got a horror of abortion, because there's so much talk in favour of it, as though it was a woman's right, try to think of it as being something very displeasing to God. God loves the innocent. And people who take innocent life, well, you've only got to open your Old Testament to see what God thinks of it. Does the fifth commandment forbid anger? The fifth commandment forbids anger and still more hatred and revenge. Why is scandal and bad example forbidden by the fifth commandment? Scandal and bad example are forbidden by the fifth commandment because they lead to the injury and spiritual death of our neighbor's soul. Scandal. Well, you know, Catholic parents who don't go to Mass, they say, Oh, I, send, I see my children go to Mass always. I send them to Mass. No. I say to them, have you ever seen little ducks crossing a road without a big duck in front? If you see little ducks crossing the road, there's always a big duck out in front, leading them. And little children make their way to heaven or hell, following their parents. It's not enough to say to them, you've got to go to Mass. Children may not know the word humbug or hypocrisy, but they recognize it quite young. Or again, if a person is known to be a Catholic and in business engages in sharp practice, that's giving scandal. Or if a woman or man go to Mass daily, say, and indulge in uncharitable conversation, that's scandal, of course. Of course, we priests, we can give more scandal than anyone. And our Lord talked about this millstone being put round our necks. If people know that you're a Catholic, they expect you to be more observant of these ordinary laws of charity. What's the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery. What does the sixth commandment forbid? The sixth commandment forbids all sins of impurity with another's wife or husband. Does the sixth commandment forbid whatever is contrary to holy purity? The sixth commandment forbids whatever is contrary to holy purity in looks, words or actions. And also dress, I may say. I think the Curie of ours, he said a lot of things, and I think one thing the Curie of ours said, if you knew how many women are in hell for their immodest dress, and that was way back a hundred years ago, women maybe don't think of these things, but they should. There was a Spanish girl. She, she was really holy, and she had as a motto, when people look at me, may they think of Mary. She wanted to be so modest and kind and, and pure that she just wanted to be like Our Lady in everything. And girls should take Our Lady as their standard in what concerns dress and a lot of other things too. Are immodest plays and dances forbidden by the Sixth Commandment? Immodest plays and dances are forbidden by the Sixth Commandment, and it's sinful to look at them. 
Thus the Sixth Commandment forbids immodest songs, books and pictures. The Sixth Commandment forbids immodest songs, books and pictures because they are most dangerous to the soul and lead to mortal sin. Well, ever since Christianity started, it's been right against the attitude of the world in what concerns sex. And this is what the Church says about the use of sex. They say it's something good, obviously it comes from God, a reflection in human nature, if you like, of the Holy Trinity. As though God split the human nature in two, and then the two halves combine to produce a third. And the Church tells us that the only good, lawful, proper use of sex is in marriage between husband and wife in the ordinary way. And every other use of sex, every other sexual enjoyment deliberately taken in thought, word or deed is sinful and seriously sinful. And so premarital sex, masturbation, homosexuality, the Church says all these things are sinful. The Church doesn't say it's sinful to be tempted. Who can avoid being tempted? We're living in a world, and the world's throwing this stuff at us morning, noon and night. But the virtue of chastity means that when we find ourselves being sort of moved towards that sort of thing, we turn away from the source of pleasure. While if a person's unchaste, then they seek these sources of sinful pleasure. Well, chastity is a gift of God, and it's a thing really worth praying for. And it's good to try to have high standards in this. I read once an illustration of how we could look at it, of a husband and wife going out for the evening, and uh, he's dressing, and she's in the next room, and she calls out, Is your collar clean? And there's a bit of a silence. And then the answer comes back, Doubtful. And she says, If it's doubtful, it's dirty. Well, I think we can apply that to a lot of things. And try to keep like our Blessed Lady in this matter. Chastity, it's the great way in which young people can show themselves true lovers of Christ. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And this is certainly a difficult commandment. But this is how we show our love for God and Christ and our Blessed Lady. And the Church has always boasted that she can produce virgins, young men and women who are virgins. And how does she do it? She says, by the Holy Eucharist and by devotion to our Blessed Lady. And so daily communion it's so powerful that it can correct anything. And devotion to Our Lady, this is a wonderful help to the soul. What's the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment is, Thou shalt not steal. What does the seventh commandment forbid? The seventh commandment forbids all unjust taking away or keeping what belongs to another. Is all manner of cheating in buying and selling forbidden by the seventh commandment? All manner of cheating in buying and selling is forbidden by the Seventh Commandment, and also every other way of wronging our neighbour. Are we bound to restore ill-gotten goods? We are bound to restore ill-gotten goods if we are able, 
or else the sin will not be forgiven, we must also pay our debts. Is it dishonest for workers to waste their employer's time or property? It is dishonest for workers to waste their employer's time or property, because it's wasting what's not their own. Again, in the matter, matter of the seventh commandment, the church's attitude is quite other to what the world's attitude is. In this matter, of course, we must distinguish between objective sin and subjective sin. Other people can do things which are dishonest in themselves, but they, without realizing that they're dishonest. But if we do them, of course, then, then we could be sinning. If ever a person's in doubt about whether a certain practice is permitted or not, well, it's wise to ask a priest. But what a priest might do would be to find someone who's in the same line of business and a daily communicant. Because there are some sort of technical matters in business, maybe, which are conventions, and in a way they can be seen to be not honest, and yet because they're conventions, they would be permitted. And so, to find someone who goes to Mass every day, very likely their conscience will be close to the conscience of Christ, and they'll have a good judgment in these matters. And so, that's the sort of person a priest might consult about, about what course to take. But if you're in doubt about whether a thing is allowed or not, then it, it's wise to ask advice of a priest, ask advice of a third person anyhow. As for restitution, if we've got property or things that we came by dishonestly, if we can't give them back to the people concerned, then it's all right if we give them or the value of them to the poor. But if we acquire goods dishonestly, and die without having made restitution in any way, then when we meet God, we have these things in our hands, and there's no way to meet God. So we have to be very careful and exact about our observance of this commandment. For instance, I remember in the seminary, I, I, got, a stamp, I got a letter through the post, and the franking machine had missed the stamp altogether. So I went and asked our uh, a uh, professor, the lecturer in moral theology, could I use this stamp again? It hadn't been touched. And he said, well, no, because the person bought it to have a certain service done him. He's received the service, and therefore it shouldn't be used again. And I asked him about smuggling. I mean, you know, taking things through the customs. And he said, no, it's a lie. Those people, the customs officials, they've got a right to, to the truth. And so if you tell them what isn't according to the facts, it's a lie. Uh, other people might say differently, but it's, it's good to take advice in these matters and to try to be very exact. If you're in doubt, I suppose, imagine yourself on your deathbed and ask yourself, what would I wish then to have chosen now? It's good to have a very clean conscience in all that concerns the seventh commandment. We've now got to the eighth commandment. Question 219. What's the eighth commandment? The eighth commandment is, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. 
What does the Eighth Commandment forbid? The Eighth Commandment forbids all false testimony, rash judgment and lies. Rash judgment, thinking harsh things about my neighbor, judging their motives and so on. We need to keep a watch over our thoughts, keep a watch over our interior. And in general, all the difficulties that we have in our interpersonal relationships come from our, our want of humility. And so when you find yourself rash judging people and thinking things against them, instead of fastening your attention on their defects, doubtless we've all got defects, it's, it's more profitable to look at your own heart and see how it is that there's some vestige of pride there which leads you to think in this harsh way of that person. Our calumny and detraction forbidden by the Eighth Commandment. Calumny, if I say that my neighbor is a thief and he's not a thief, that is the sin of calumny. If I say that my neighbor is a thief and he is a thief, that is the sin of detraction. My neighbor has a right to his good reputation and I have no right to take it away. And so to talk about people and reveal things about them, they may be true, okay, but uh, have I got a right to tell other people about this? Mind you, if a person's got a, a reputation, if he's been in the newspapers as being a murderer and... Uh, I mentioned that he's a murderer. Well, there's no sin there because everyone knows it. But ordinarily, we have to be very careful how we talk about our neighbor. And the way the saints behaved is they couldn't find something good to say about people. They kept their mouths shut. So, calumny and attraction are forbidden by the Eighth Commandment and also tail-bearing and any words which injure our neighbor's character. If you, if you have injured your neighbor by speaking ill of him, what are you bound to do? If I've injured my neighbor by speaking ill of him, I'm bound to make him satisfaction by restoring his good name as far as I can. Well, that's easier said than done. There's a story about a woman who went to a priest in confession and said that she'd been spreading uh, uncharitable stories about her neighbor. And the priest said, well, right, you go back home, kill a chicken, and come back to the church plucking it, plucking the feathers. So she went home, and she killed a chicken, and came back to the church with it under her arm, plucking the feathers. And when she got back to the church, she said to the priest, well, Father, here's the chicken, it's all plucked. And he said, right, now you go back and collect the feathers. And she said, but Father, they've blown all around the village. And he said, well, what about the stories you've been telling about people? So we have to be careful about these things. And it's very easy for people who are all right in other respects to fail to keep a, a guard over their tongue. And when our Lord says we're going to be judged for every idle word we speak, and certainly we shall be judged for every uncharitable word we've spoken. So if there's been a lot of sin in that way in the past, it's a good thing to try to correct it now. What's the Ninth Commandment? The Ninth Commandment is, Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife. What does the Ninth Commandment forbid? 
The ninth commandment forbids all willful consent to impure thoughts and desires and all willful pleasure at the irregular motions of the flesh. What sins commonly lead to the breaking of the sixth and ninth commandments? The sins that commonly lead to the breaking of the sixth and ninth commandments are gluttony, drunkenness and intemperance and also idleness, bad company and the neglect of prayer. And that's quite true. And so again in the matter of the use of sex the Catholic Church puts before us a marvellous high standard and by trying to keep close to God in this way this is the way that, that, that we mature in our faith and grow in our union with God and I sometimes wonder why God's made uh, chastity difficult and I suppose the reason is that God wants people to be saints he wants us to be holy. And he knows that if there's not mortification and great effort, we'll never get holy. And let's just say that a person never had any temptations of any sort. They found every virtue fairly easy. They wouldn't pray enough. They wouldn't go to the sacraments enough. They wouldn't make enough effort. And so they wouldn't be making that progress in union with God that they should. God thinks to himself, well, I can't let that go on. And so he allows people all sorts of temptations of what, in one way or another. And so the person finds, they find themselves compelled to go to communion much more often than they would, or to pray much more fervently than they would, or to practice some sort of self-denial much more than otherwise they would. And these are the things that count. These help us keep close to God. What's the tenth commandment? The tenth commandment is, Thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's good. What does the tenth commandment forbid? The tenth commandment forbids all envious and covetous thoughts and unjust desires of our neighbor's goods and profits. Well, we've got to the end of the ten commandments now. <coughs> we've gone to the commandments of the church. These ten commandments, as I said before, I think, they are the expression of the natural law. They come from the, our own makeup. These commandments of the church, oh no, they're, they're what are given us by our mother of the church to make sure that we put into practice uh, various uh, aspects of, of the natural law. Are we bound to obey the church? We're bound to obey the church, because Christ has said to the pastors of the, ch of the church, He that heareth you, heareth me, and he that despiseth you, despiseth me. Well, Christ did say that to the first bishops of the church. And so we have to respect our bishops, and when they tell us to do things, we have to remember that Christ didn't establish a, dem a democracy. He set up his family, the church. And in this church, the bishops are our rulers, and by obeying them, we are obeying Christ. What are the chief commandments of the church? The chief commandments of the church are to keep the Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation holy by hearing Mass and resting from servile works, to keep the days of fasting and abstinence appointed by the church, to go to confession at least once a year, to receive the Blessed Sacrament at least once a year, and that at Easter or thereabouts, 
to contribute to the support of our pastors, not to marry within certain degrees of kindred, nor to solemnize marriage at the forbidden times. What's the first commandment of the Church? The first commandment of the Church is to keep the Sundays and Holy Days of obligation holy by hearing Mass and resting from servile works. I've said something about that already, but it is important to try to remember that Sunday is the Lord's Day, and if out of the whole week that God gives us, if we refuse Him that hour that required for going to Mass, then that is so serious. The Church tells us that is a deadly sin. That's a mortal sin. That's the sort of sin that will kill your interior life. We have to keep the commandments, and the, and the first commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. I meet people, not infrequently, who tell me they, got, they don't go to church at all, they don't go to Mass, or if they're not Catholics, they don't go to their own church, but they reckon they keep the commandments. And so, uh, why should they bother to go to church? Now, the first commandment of all is that we've got to love God with all our heart. And to give, we give concrete expression to that by going to Mass on Sundays. Which are the holy days of obligation observed in England and Wales? Now, different countries have different holy days of obligation. The bishops of the country decide what are the special feast days they want observed in their country, and so they make them holy days of obligation. For instance, in Ireland, of course, St. Patrick's Day is a holy day of obligation. Different countries have their own special saints. Well, what have we got in England and Wales? Christmas Day, the Epiphany, the Ascension, Corpus Christi, Saints. SS means saints. Saints Peter and Paul, the Assumption of Our Lady, and all saints. Christmas Day, you know, December the 25th. Epiphany, that's a Greek word meaning showing. It's the day our Lord showed himself for the first time to the non-Jews, the, the three wise men. The feast is on January the 6th. So that's a holy day of obligation. When we celebrate the three kings who came to adore our Lord. The Ascension, that is the Thursday, which comes 40 days after Easter. Corpus Christi, that is the Thursday after Trinity Sunday. Corpus Christi, Latin words meaning the body of Christ. We celebrate the Feast of the Holy Eucharist. The natural day for celebrating it would be Maundy Thursday, when our Lord instituted this sacrament. But on Maundy Thursday we are already thinking of the sufferings of Christ. And it's no real day to have a feast of the Holy Eucharist. And so the feast is put off until the whole Easter season, the Paschal season as we call it, is ended after Pentecost, and then we have Corpus Christi. Saints Peter and Paul, that feast comes on June the 29th, the Assumption of Our Lady, August the 15th, and All Saints Day is November the 1st. Are Catholics bound to attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation? Catholics are under a serious obligation to attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation unless prevented by other serious duties or by ill health. Well, in England now, on Saturday evenings, ordinarily, 
there's in most parishes there's what they call the first mass of Sunday when the mass of the Sunday is already said and so if people are working all day Sunday and simply cannot get a mass on Sunday then if they attend that Saturday evening mass that counts for their Sunday obligation if a person, if a mother has a sick child and has to stay all day by the child, obviously she's excused from going to Mass. If a person's ill, unwell, obviously they're excused from going to Mass. And there can be excusing causes. But if a person stays away from Mass on a Sunday simply because they want to spend the day playing tennis or something, ah, then that's serious. That shows that the love of God no longer has top priority in our hearts. Are parents, masters and mistresses bound to provide that those under their charge shall hear Mass and Sundays and holidays of obligation? Parents, masters and mistresses are bound to provide that those under their charge shall hear Mass and Sundays and holidays of obligation. Well, the difficulty for parents, of course, is when does a child cease to be sort of under their charge? And you can tell little children nine and ten, you've got to go to Mass. But if you start exercising the same compulsion on a boy of 16, say, it can be counterproductive. And that's a real problem for parents. And for some parents, I suppose, once the children got past the age of 11 or 12, all they can do then, really, is to pray very hard for them and set them a very good example. So, Parents with children, they have to reckon that it's the very early years of their life. If they're carrying them up to communion, Sunday after Sunday, in their arms, then it won't be so hard later on to persuade them that it's very important to go to Mass. But if the little children don't see their parents going to Mass in the sacraments, I don't think our Lord Himself would be able to persuade them that they ought to go to Mass on Sundays. So, those words bound to provide you, you've got to interpret that rightly it's very difficult for parents well, we've come to the end of the tape there God bless you